on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with a sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord, of, the Lord God of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me? O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? And the Philistines from Kaphtor? And the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command... And shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes a sheave, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. And all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will rise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and that all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and, and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I give them, says the Lord your God. This is the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we come before you Amazed at who you are. Show us more. Reveal to us more. And help us to not just hear it, but to, tr to understand who you are as you have revealed yourself. Help us to accept who you are as you have revealed yourself. Help us to be your people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A.W. Tozer in 1961 wrote this. He said, The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. That's a pretty powerful statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God 
is the most important thing about us. To develop right thinking and therefore true knowledge of God, we must go into His Word and we must read it. We must study it. We must wrestle with it. We must digest it. We must abide in it. Even in the face of a mysterious God that is sometimes hard and even frightening to understand. And so today, the big picture for us as we come to an end of Amos is, is I think, one of the major themes that Amos has here is for us to understand and know who God is as He is revealed. There are two things that we're going to see. There are two things that we're going to see that we've kind of talked about again and again and again because we're slow to hear. We are so slow to hear, and so God repeats it to us again and again and again in Amos. And the first one is this, that God is a God of judgment. And the second thing we're going to see is that God is a God of salvation. Both of those, equally true. And so let us hear about the God of judgment as we kind of do an overview of verses 1 through 10. Now, as we have gone through the book of Amos, he has done different things. And now we're at the very end of the last of the five visions that he had presented. Um, and we come probably what, to what many consider to be the most unsettling of them. Uh, throughout Amos, the Lord has been seen as an agent of judgment. Now in this final vision, he appears directly in the vision. The prophet is, has been giving us a glimpse of the judge poised to carry out the promised judgment. And in each of the visions before, he said, I saw the Lord. Um, I mean, he says, I, the Lord showed me. We're here in the passage. He says, I saw the Lord. What's interesting in this is, is that the Lord himself was standing by the altar and he's speaking words of judgment. Now, I want you to think about this because this should unnerve us. Because when we think about an altar, what we think about is the sacrifice. And we think about this in, in the terms that the altar is a place where sacrifices were made for sin. And so this is where God, through that sacrifice, would reconcile the worshiping, repentant person to Him. So the altar is this place of mercy. It is a place of forgiveness. It is a place of love. It is a place where God would uh, wash away the sin. But in this vision, do you get it? In this vision, it is not a vision of mercy. The Lord is not standing by the altar to receive worship. He is not standing there to bless. He is standing there to destroy. That's what the text tells us. To destroy. It is the scene of, of judgment. It is the end of mercy, not the beginning. And so these words are startling from, from the very first of the chapter. Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left with, uh, of them I will kill with a sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. So as we think about this passage, notice that there is no escape for those 
who are the Lord's enemy. There is nowhere to run. There is nowhere to hide. If, if they dig into Sheol, if they go down into the grave, if they, if they do that, they can't hide from it. If, if they try to go up into heaven, they can't hide from Him. They can't hide on the, mount, the top of Mount Carmel. They can't hide at the bottom of the sea. He has said, I will get them. I will destroy them. It reminded me of the movie Taken. Perhaps some of you have seen that movie. I have not because I can't watch that vengeful stuff. But perhaps you have. If you haven't, there's a scene where the, uh, the, the, the storyline is taken, obviously, about a man's daughter who's taken, and he's a CIA guy, an ex-CIA guy. And his name is Brian Mills. It's played by Liam Neeson. And, uh, and as this CIA agent's daughter, as she is kidnapped, she tries to contact her father. And he ends up on, on the phone with the kidnappers. And he says probably the most, they, they play this all the time. So if you haven't seen it, you, you have in some commercial or something. But he, as he's talking to the kidnappers, he says, I do not know who you are. I do not know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you that I don't have any money. But what I do have are a particular set of skills. Skills that I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go, it'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you do not, I will look for you. And I will kill you. And so therefore goes the movie. You see? Now whatever skills this Mills has, he is nothing on the Lord. I mean nothing on the Lord. No matter where you go, no matter what you do, you cannot hide from Him. You cannot run from Him. He is the Lord. He is the Creator God. So look at it this way. He made it all. And so do you remember when you were a little child and you found that great little hiding place where you could hide? He made it so He knows where it is. You cannot hide from Him in all of creation. Do you remember Adam and Eve in the garden? What did they do? As soon as they sinned, they tried to hide. And it's interesting, isn't it? It's an interesting dialogue because God comes into the garden. He says, Adam, where are you? Do you think Adam, I mean, do you think God knew where Adam was? Sure he did. He was not going to hide. There's nowhere to hide. He knows all the hiding places. He can find us in our rebellion. He can find us in our sin against Him. Let that sink in for a moment. Furthermore, the text points out that He is the Lord God of hosts. Now notice that. We talk about that from time to time. Whenever you see that in Scripture, whenever it says the Lord God of hosts, He is saying something very specific. He is saying that I am the warrior God. Um, there was a little boy not too long ago playing, and, and, um, and I, it might have been at our, our little Halloween gathering, I can't remember, but anyway, there was a little boy playing, and he was running around with his little pistols and stuff like that and everything, and he, I'm like, you're a bad man, he goes, yeah, I'm a bad man, and all this stuff and everything, and I'm like, you're revealing the nature of your God. 
We don't often think about that, do we? God is a warrior. He is a strong warrior. When it says He's the Lord of hosts, it means He he commands legions of armies of, of angels. He is a powerful God. It says here that He touches the earth and it melts. And all who dwell in it mourn. He says that all of it rises like the Nile and then it sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. He builds His upper chambers in the heavens. He founds His vault upon the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and He pours them out upon the surface of the earth. He is a great warrior king. The name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. He is a warrior king. Mortier says, His disastrous and terrible judgment is underwritten by His very nature. God is the creator warrior God. A holy God of judgment. And He will destroy sin. Here specifically, he mentions some deeper hidden issues in the lives of the Israelites. He exposes them for who they are. As again, no one can hide from God. Verse 7, it says here that, or in verse 7, there's an atmosphere here that is similar to chapter 3, where the people had used their own election, their own covenant relationship with Him as a guarantee that they were immune from judgment. This warrior God is coming against this. He exposes those deeper heart issues. And He reminds them that privilege does not make anyone immune from judgment. He had redeemed them from Egypt. But what did they do? They turned away. You remember when they came out of Egypt? And you think about it just for a minute. How many people were He pleased with when they came out? Really, the text as you read it says just three but He still redeemed them. So He pulls them out of Egypt and they just turn away. They turned away so much so that they do not even know Him. In light of this, they're counted no different than the people of Cush. They are to be judged as pagans as far as He is concerned. God is the Creator, warrior God, a God of judgment, and He will destroy sin. So, as we think about this, as we think about who God is in this first half of the passage, and we wrestle with it, there's a couple things that we need to deal with. And the first is this. I mentioned it briefly here. Is this just this idea of the doctrine of election. These people were God's redeemed people, and they believed, hey, I, I, it's all good. We're good with God. But God was telling them, no, you're not. Listen to me. Repent and turn away. The doctrine of election is is not a doctrine to be taken advantage of. To say once saved, always saved is not an excuse for sin. The New Testament speaks to this as well. The ladies of the ladies Bible study even made me a cut that's on my desk and it says these words, by no means, and it comes from Romans chapter 6. Where Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What he is saying here is that new birth results in new life. 
Does that mean that we're sinless, Pastor? Well, no, not at all. We talked about this when we came to our time of confession. He writes these things. John says, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Meaning that when we sin, we are to go to the advocate. We are to go to Jesus. That's why we do that each week here. It may be the only time during the week where we consider it. So it's an opportunity for us to look at ourselves and to say, Lord, please forgive me. We do that corporately and we do that individually. We are to go to the advocate. And what's going on here in the passages is that the people of Israel were not turning to Him. They they said in verse 10, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Aren't we the children of Abraham saved from slavery in Egypt? So we're good, Amos. We're good. We're all good. God's good. We're good with God. What's your problem? They were proud in their hearts. Their hearts were hardened. Their faith was a fiasco. It wasn't real. Perhaps in our day, we would hear someone say, well, I prayed a prayer when I was six. I'm all good. I'm all good. They have no care or thought of who God really is or how they should live before Him. And it's just so easy to become self-absorbed that it's all about me. Well, what, what about me? What about me? One of, uh, one of the secretaries I worked for one time said that one of her favorite stories was going to a party, and it was a little girl's birthday party. And of course, you know, when you have a birthday party, you know, the little girl's there, and she has the cake, and she has the presents, and all the things. And, and so she's getting all the attention and, and all the things. And there was one little girl who was there that kept saying, But what about me? What about me? Why can't I have presents, mommy? Where's my gifts, mommy? What about me? That's the point of what's going on with the Israelites. What about me? This is where their idolatry began. It begins with us too. We admire ourselves. We slowly fashion God into a God of our own likeness and our own ways. And then we become God. We tell God what to do. I think I've told this story before, but I was reminded of it last night and I was talking to a friend and uh, we, were, we were talking about some books we've been reading and we've been talking about kind of together when we see each other a couple times, you know, throughout uh, uh, the, you know, the fall and spring seasons because of kids stuff and everything. So we'll talk about books we're reading. And we we're just talking about this idea of once saved, always saved and the presumption of election. And that's what really he's talking about here. You, you're presuming an awful lot by not, and you're not living out the way that you should. And so I'm going to judge you. Is what the Lord says here. And he said, but I really strongly believe in once saved, always saved. And I said, I believe in the perseverance of the saints too. I'm Presbyterian. But we don't take advantage of God and our sin. And I said, let me give you an example. So one day, um, once when I was a young man, I was um, approached by this lady. And it's a long story of how I knew her and everything. And she said, would you hang out with my husband some? And I was like, that's the strangest request I've ever had in my life. I don't know what all this is about. And uh, so I went to hang out with him one day. We went to the gym together, you know, and um, 
He was, uh, we were pumping iron and all that stuff and everything. And he, you know, he's going on. And so then he starts telling me about what he's been doing on the weekends. So he graduated from Appalachian State University, which is in Boone, which is a little bit northwest of where the town was that we were in. And so he would go there on the weekends and he would pick up college girls. That's what he would do. And he would have his little affairs and little flings and stuff like that. And then he would come home and act like, you know, Joe Blow, Mr. Man, you know, in his home. And so I'm like, wow, that's very interesting. You know, we're sitting there, but he's telling me about all these affairs and things he's having as we're working out. I'm like, this is just weird. You know, it's just weird. How did I get into this? I don't know how I got into this. So then we get out, and you, what you did after the workout, I found out, was you go into this, like, steam box thing. So we're in this steam box thing, and we're in there, and I see he's got this cross hanging on his neck, and it's getting real hot. And so this is what he says to me. Man, it's hot in here, isn't it? Like, yeah, it is. You know, I can about take this for about two more minutes and I'm out of here, Jack. It's really hot. Whew, it's hot. Aren't you glad? Whew, I'm so glad I'm saved and I'm not going to hell. And I'm like, man, that's awful strange there, isn't it? I said, what, what, what would make you think that? Well, I prayed this prayer back years ago. I'm not going to hell. And I'm thinking, I would, you have to understand, I wasn't a believer. And I'm thinking, even I know better than that. <laughs> really? That's what the Lord's talking about here with these people. You, you can't take advantage of His grace. Don't be presumptuous. The message of God through Amos is a warning to us. It's a warning not to be complacent. It's a warning not to be careless sinners living in the world of pretense in a world of make-believe. Again, that does not mean we don't sin. What would have been interesting about that man is if he would have said, Patrick, I've got caught in this, this lie and I'm lying to my wife and I don't know what to do. Help me. There's hope for that man. For the other guy, there's no hope. Unless the Lord works in his heart and he repents. And I have no idea what happened to all that. But do you see the difference? And that is exactly what's going on here. It's a warning. The judgment we see in the book of Amos is actually foreshadowed of the judgment to come when Christ returns. If you look in the Old Testament and you read from all the prophets, they're talking about the judgments to come. There's some reality of things that happen then, but there's also some reality of things that won't happen until the end. And all the judgment in Scripture points to that which will happen in the end at the great judgment to come when Christ returns. All the New Testament writers understood this in light of the Old Testament writers. And so the issue for us in this that we have to deal with is, is that we cannot be presumptuous about our election. Perseverance of the saints is this. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you, and you do what Luther said, which is repent daily of your sin. And you continue to walk in Him and you continue to focus on Him. That is perseverance of the saints. And though at times when it seems like, Lord, how can you call me as your servant? How can I, be, how can I claim the name of Christ? How can I do that, Lord? In the end, we'll find out that He persevered in us in all of our struggle with sin. But be warned. If you think it's all good, be warned. And turn and repent. 
Don't stay in that mess. Get help. This brings us to our second matter here. As we have been studying through Amos, perhaps it has pricked your heart. I don't know how, and maybe for you it's different because you're in here, you know, just once a week. But for me, as I've been in this book, it has pricked my heart again and again and again. It has exposed things, sins. It has exposed struggles. And what happens is, is when the Lord is roaring and He is pointing out the sin in our lives, the, the, the most foolish thing we think in all the world is, is to run to Him. And everything in us says, run from Him. He's dangerous. But He would have us run to Him. It seems foolish. But it is actually the wise and incredibly thoughtful and encouraging thing that we can do is to run into the arms of a roaring lion. And that's what we're called to do. It is only there in His arms that we're safe from His bite. And He has a bite. Read the passage. It's scary. You know when they were taken off into captivity, the devastation that occurred to Israel at this time. Wow. God is not only a God who judges, but He is a God of mercy and salvation. So as we think about who God is, let's keep that in the back of our minds. Keep that warning there. And now let's move on to the second point. The God of salvation. And, and, and really in many ways as we look at this, as we kind of mostly focus on uh, verses 11 through 15, <clears throat> in many ways the book of Amos is a, gl a gloomy message of total destruction. It's an astonishingly dark. It's just dark. Yet when Amos himself cried out for forgiveness... And he cried out for the Lord to cease the total destruction of his people in chapter 7. We see that God has compassion there. And, and, it, and it, it, we look at that as we're reading it. We're like, okay, there's a compassion here. And then here at the end of, of the, the whole book, we see a glimmer of this compassion and words of hope in the final vision even in verse 8. He says, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. And so then as we come to verse 11, we see finally some light. We've had hints of it, but here we see this vividness, this, this, this contrast. And this contrast is so great that some people who study Amos have said, this can't be of Amos. And so they said that it was added later or something like that. But it seems to me as we look at the Scripture that when we look at any of the prophets and even Amos here, this is how they speak. God is a God of justice. He is a God of judgment. He will judge sin. It's in His nature. He cannot do otherwise. But God is a God of mercy as well. We hear it, don't we, in the New Testament. And, and probably the most famous verse there is in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would have everlasting life. 
What this tells us is is that God is a God of love. He's He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's a faithful God. And what He's done is throughout time, He has remained faithful throughout Um, uh, the history of Israel, despite the idolatrous people toward his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David, he has been faithful. He is indeed a God of salvation. And as we look at these words, he, he, we see his faithful promises unfold in a way in which Amos himself did not even understand, nor did anyone until the coming of the Messiah. Look at how it unfolds. Look at verse 11. We see the kingdom of David raised. He says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild the cities of old. I want you to think about that promise just for a moment. He is speaking to the remnant. Sure, things are prosperous. And remember, they're hearing this and they're going, what? Everything's good. It's, it's, the, king, the other kingdoms are at bay right now. We've got money. We've got time. We've got all this stuff. Dude, relax. Just leave us alone. We don't want to hear anymore. But the remnant would hear it and they would understand Do you know that the kingdom is split? The northern kingdom doesn't even worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They've built their own. They're spiritually fouled. Everything seems great. They're going to all the religious services, but they're spiritually fouled. They're not what they once were, and they know it. They can only imagine what it was like when they read the things of David and they think back to the way things used to be where David was king and all the nation was in unity and the glory that it once was, the largeness of the kingdom. And the kings after him, they had just turned so far away from the Lord that God can't even refer to David's line as a house, but as a tent. But God says that He will send the promised King, a descendant of David, to rule and He will rebuild the kingdom. And so here's the deal. The one who repents and turns from his sin and trusts in God as the Savior Redeemer, he has that kingdom, that real kingdom of David to look forward to. Secondly, we see here that other kingdoms are included in the restoration. Now when the Davidic kingdom is raised in verse 11, something more glorious happens in verse 12. It's described this way, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. It's what he's really communicating here that, again, we don't know. If we were living in Amos' time, we wouldn't really know what's going on. But in Jesus' time, we get it. And what is that? Messianic hope is described here as universal. There's universal hope. This is stunning. Though it was noted in the garden at the fall of mankind, the Jews had become to view themselves as God's people. And God Himself said that in Amos 3.2. He says that you only were the, are the people of the earth that I know. 
But here, the Lord speaks of multiple nations that are going to be a part of God's kingdom, even enemies. They're all enemies, aren't they? (laughs) That's interesting here. Edom specifically, is used symbolically by the prophets as an embodiment of the hostility of the world to the kingdom of God. You know, if you go to, um, I was reading this morning in the Psalms, and I think it's Psalm 134, um, when, uh, the, the, when Jerusalem fell and, and the city there to Babylon, the Edomites are standing out there going, burn! Burn, tear it down, burn it down. They're going in concert with the Babylonians. Enemies of God. It's all over the place. Edomites are like the despised ones. But here, Edom and all the nations are what? Called by my name. Called by my name. Isaiah 4.1 shows that this is a piece of marriage terminology actually. And it speaks to intimate oneness. So what God is saying is, is, I am going to be intimate with these people, these nations, even remnants of the Edomites. Without getting into too much detail at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, as we jump ahead to the New Testament, James stands up there in the debate over who's in the church, what should qualify people to be in the church, and that type of thing. And he quoted from this very passage as the scriptural justification for the decision that the Gentiles were eligible for co-equal membership in the things of the Lord. This is incredible news. Anyone here from Jewish heritage, I'm just curious. This is incredible news for us. Do you get it? Great news for us who are Gentiles, who are enemies of the Lord. We are adopted. We who were once enemies and who repent and turn away from sin and trust God as the Savior, Redeemer, now have been adopted as sons and daughters of the King. And we have so much more to look forward to. What might that be? Let's look at our thirdly. We see the end of the curse of the earth. Look at it this way. The Messiah is not only the second David, but He is also the second Adam. And He will be reigning in a restored Eden. This is the reality of all the passages that speak of the natural bounty of the Messianic kingdom. Here in verses 13 through 15, the earth will yield, um, the earth's yield will be so lavish that abundant crops will be so that no one can finish harvesting them. The wine will be so plentiful that it is pictured of oozing in rivers down the mountains and the hills. Glorious cities will be rebuilt, and disappointment and frustration will come to an end. One commentator said that the very physical fabric and potencies of nature will once again partake of the holy character of God who made them, and will be operating in the favor of man for his enrichment as before the fall. The kingdom's The citizens of the kingdom will be set completely free from the penalty of sin. The land will be theirs forever. The kingdom will not just be on a little plot of land in this little place in the Middle East, but it will be the entire planet. That's the vision here. 
It's incredible. A couple nights ago, uh, Aaliyah was watching her little Disney movie, Peter Pan. She put it in. You know how those Disney movies that started, they always give you 20 commercials, you know. The first one that popped up was Cinderella 2. I've never seen Cinderella 2. I have no idea what Cinderella 2 was like. But this was the tagline. What does it look like to live happily ever after? Anytime you put a Disney movie in, anytime you watch some hero movie or or great love story or whatever the case may be, those things appeal to you because of the great desire that is within all of us to have everything renewed. To really and truly live happily ever after. To really and truly be loved like our heart desires for who we are. That desire is there. What does happily ever after look like? It looks like this. Let me ask you, is that too much for you? Is it too idealistic? Is it too good to be true? Too impossible to ever be achieved? Sometimes when you look at this world, you think, man, the politicians try all the time. Don't they make all these promises? They never happen, do they? You go to a new job and you think, man, this is going to be it. I've arrived and no. The next vacation comes around to see, oh, I finally get some rest. No. But let me tell you something. When the king returns, mm, when the king returns, all of these promises will have their fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah. Behold, he says, I make all things new. I can't even begin to fathom. You know, I think about this a lot. Because one of my my favorite things in life was in college, going into the cafeteria, getting a food tray, eating with my friends, and putting the food tray up and not ever thinking about it. Not thinking about cooking it, not thinking about cleaning up after it. I think that'll be that way in heaven. (laughs) I really do. I think I might just pick a fruit and eat it and just live. Because it's all made right. It's all made the way it's supposed to be. I'm not saying we won't work. Work will be good then. But I'm just saying, you know, it's going to be great. Amos' final words of promise conclude with the common but remarkable phrase. And listen to this. Says the Lord your God. Says the Lord your God. Do you understand that when he says that, that I am the judge and I am the Savior. I will judge those who, who, who have turned away from me. I will save those who turn to me. I am roaring, hear me and respond. Do you know him? 
This God who brings terrible judgment to those who reject Him and oppose Him is the same God who is loving and merciful and saving. And so there is just one question left to answer. Is He your God? Are you a pretender? Or are you a knower of the Creator, Savior, God? When He says, this has come to me, repent and give your allegiance to me and me alone and my kingdom above all things. Receive not only me, but the benefits and the privileges that are not only now, but more so to come. Come and be a part of the kingdom, proclaiming work of Jesus our Lord as His kingdom is proclaimed. And, and, and with John the Baptist cry out, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what He calls us to. And I end with Paul. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and evermore. Amen.